Welcome back to another episode of the Learning to Live podcast. My name is Chaz Okada, and I am pleased to announce that this week we have the amazing physics lecturer, Professor Steinecker from Yale University. I'm so happy to share this interview with you because Professor Steinecker gives so many valuable insights into things such as how she chose her career path, the importance of finding a role model or a mentor. And also, we discuss hard work, being great, and finding satisfaction. I really got a lot out of this interview, and I think that you will too. So, without further ado, let's get into the interview. It's been a pleasure for you to take your time, your busy schedule, and sit down with us today. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast. How would you describe yourself today? What do you do? So I work primarily with students. I work with a lot of students. I'm a lecturer, so my time is spent teaching, preparing for classes. A lot of my time is spent in the classroom and outside of the classroom working with the students. Um, in fact, I spend more time in office hours working with students than I spend in lectures, and that is often the most enjoyable part of my my week. And you teach science, correct? I teach physics. Um, I used to teach astronomy as well. I used to teach a wide variety of physics and astronomy courses before I came to Yale. When I came to Yale, I adopted the 180-181 series and um, this takes up all of my time, so it's uh, at the moment hard to find time to teach another class besides this one. One thing that I find unique about your class particularly is the amount of time that you do spend in office hours and the amount of energy that you devote to, your stu to making sure that your students are learning the material and understanding it. What drives you particularly to spend that time and energy as opposed to some other professors might not? So I think this ties into the choices I made earlier on in my life about the career I wanted to have. And um, we may get to talk about this, but there was a time when I understood that oh, my personality was not suited to juggling a lot of things at once, but it is more suited to uh, do things in depth. And I think that that is reflected in my lecture style as well, that I, I will not choose to lecture on a lot of top, uh, topics and brush over. I would rather spend the time to go deep. Um, and the, the realization that I needed to have a more confined set of duties um, came at some point and I think I and I never regretted the fact that I realized that and I chose to do what I do so I think that in all fairness you uh, cannot compare my job to that of a faculty who has to do research as well get grant money advise students uh, both undergrads and grads those are a um, huge number of responsibilities. In some way, I have the luxury to focus on the things that I like to do and, and to, to spend my time working with the students. Interesting. And I'm curious to know, has science, something, has science been something that you've always had an interest in or did that develop later on in your life? Well, so growing up, I was interested in pretty much everything I can be interested in. So I was um, very curious. I was a very curious child, and I, I really liked to involve myself in everything. I would be in a dance performance. I would be in choir, in orchestra, but I also was good in school, and I really loved every subject. And to the point that my parents had to pull me out of things because I had no sense about how much I could take on. So um, I really, I always felt that I could have 10 lives to do all the things that I am interested in doing. Um, so I think that 
yeah, I was interested in sciences, in the sciences, just as much as I was interested in, interested in writing or in languages. I, I could not say that there was a priority between these disciplines up to a given point. Is there anything in particular that you think drives your curiosity? Do you seek to understand something more about the world or like the nature of things? Or what do you think drives that curiosity? Because I find myself in a similar situation. I have more interest than I could handle and I wish that I had more time. I don't know. I think I've always been observant. I like to stop for a bug, for a fallen leaf, for a flower and study them up close I just that was something I always enjoyed doing it was that way mm. and I don't think this was trained and it was really innate as you got older how did you narrow down all of those interests into science yeah so um, when I got to high school I had two fundamental interests. I mean, by that, I mean that I decided I decided at that time I wasn't going to focus on languages or humanities. I it was going to be a science. And between the two things that I was primarily interested in, was, one was biology, and I was thinking of becoming a doctor, and the other one was physics. And both were connected to having extremely dedicated teachers in these disciplines. Both of them made me feel valuable, made me feel that I could reach for those goals and supported me all the way and encouraged me. My biology teacher would tell me, I will turn you into a doctor. And my physics teacher would tell me, I will turn you into a physicist. And it was for a while hard to make a decision. So I remember spending the first year of high school um, swinging between both. And first I committed to physics and then I I decided, no, I think I want to do biology. So I told my physics teacher I will not attend these extra hours that he was setting aside for us for a specific group of students to work on problems and labs outside of the lecture curi- the curriculum and and he was um he was sad I, I could see he really didn't want me to leave the group but it was my decision so at the end of, of that same year he came back to talk to me and said are you sure you want to leave this are you sure you don't want to join us back in this group and I felt just so happy that somebody cared enough about what I was doing or how I was thinking and how I was performing in his class that he would encourage me so much to return to this, to this group, to this study group. And because I felt physics was just had a, a beauty of its own that is so different from everything else that that kind of pulled me back. And from that moment on, I felt this is, I'm going to go for this. And all my years of high school were spent studying physics, of studying a lot of physics outside of the classes that we were required to take. And, uh, and when it came then time to make a decision about what to do for college, I again started thinking about medical school. So it wasn't that I was set or even architecture I really would have enjoyed or engineering I would have enjoyed any of those disciplines and perhaps through um, a little bit of a path of least resistance behavior I I just kept going on that physics idea I keep hearing from a lot of people that having that mentor when you're younger or just somebody that is really invested and cares about your development and growth and learning that makes a huge difference because I talked to my high school teacher I actually interviewed my science teacher in high school and he said the same thing about for him it was college his college professor was the one who was really invested and that really changed it changed his whole life path and it's I think it's important as people as young people as we grow up we also devote that same amount of energy and attention into the people that we have influence on yeah that's very true that the young people need mentors young people need to see the value in themselves they don't always see it 
on their own. And especially in the formative years of high school when so many things can happen and one is pulled in so many different directions that to have a person like that in your life is invaluable. And uh, it, it just provides the backbone, a sense of direction, a self-confidence that, that almost never can be replaced by anything else later in life. And the foundation that that uh, a student gets from high school cannot be understated. Mm -hmm. Speaking of being pulled in different di directions, did you ever find that people, because you were a girl looking to go into the sciences, did you ever find that people were resistant to that or did you have any challenge? No, I was fortunate enough not to have such a resistance. And this has something to do with the cultural environment in which I grew up. I don't speak much about this, but I grew up in Romania, which is a country that, I mean, I was, I grew up as a bilingual, bicultural uh, my mom is German and my dad was Romanian. So we, um, in that culture, it was girls were equally encouraged as boys. And in fact, the best performing in the sciences um, were girls, the best mm -hmm. at physics, the best at math. There was never stigma associated with that. It was only encouragement and uh, with that, I was really strongly equipped to never get bent out of shape if anyone then made uh, made comments, which uh, happened on occasion when I moved to Germany. My family moved to Germany to live there permanently at some point. And uh, when I, I recall telling, for instance, my dentist, he, he asked me, what are you studying? And I said, physics. And they looked at me and made remarks like, oh, aren't you like too small to study physics as if my physical constitution would have anything to do with the discipline? And it was mind boggling to me. I had never heard any such comments before. But overall, I, I have to say that I've always felt respected. I felt respected in within my group of students where we were only 20 girls in a class of 200 in college. And... Um, I've always felt respected also in uh, years after college when I did my graduate work or postgraduate work. That's great. Do you have any advice for a young person, perhaps a young female who is looking to go into the sciences, but they are experiencing some pushback or they have some challenges that they have to overcome and people are saying, no, you shouldn't go into that because you're a girl. Do you have any advice? Oh, my advice is to persevere. If uh, you find that that is what you want to do, um, you have to follow your, your uh, calling. And um, it can, I can see why it, why it can be hard, but um, cultural stigma should never be a reason for why somebody cannot follow what they, their dreams. Mm -hmm. So moving into college, did you ever change your major much or were you just straight through after that, after you decided that you're going to do physics, that you were dedicated to physics? Yeah, so I did have a little bit of a crisis in college in my first few years, two years, I struggled a little with the, the sense of direction. Um, I felt I didn't feel I, I didn't I no longer felt that that what I chose to do really would make an impact. I, I feel I always want to make an impact. And I started thinking about careers that in my mind at the time would be more impactful. Again, again, thinking back, oh, I should switch to medical school, perhaps, or maybe even I should go into nursing. Um, so I, I, I considered becoming a teacher, a high school teacher. There's a very good solid education program in Germany for that it's they have a degree of their own where uh, students follow first the curriculum with everybody else and after a number of years it just splits off in um, I I still didn't do that and maybe that that idea followed me later in my life the idea of what is it about what is it that I'm doing that will prevail? Um, well, you know what I what I need to do is something that that I consider as meaningful, 
and that yeah that makes an impact i wanted i didn't want to do something that would be forgotten or that would turn out to be maybe even disproved at some point that was a thought that always went through my mind mm -hmm. did you do any research when you were in college for undergrad yeah so our degree in germany involved so it was a master's like a master's degree here it's not quite equivalent and uh, there was a five-year program where in the last oh, one year, one year and a half, we um, were required to do a thesis project, an independent thesis project. So that was when I started doing research. And uh, that is when I went into astronomy, actually. What was that research? Uh, so that was um, on cosmic rays, a cosmic ray acceleration. So you said that that's how you got into astronomy. What did you do after that to keep pursuing astronomy? So after the after my thesis, my advisor offered that I could continue to work with him um, on a PhD thesis. And in Germany, this is, uh, or at least was at the time, I think it still is that way. I, I don't know because I've been gone now for 16 years, so it's... <laughs> can't really, I don't have as much of an understanding of the landscape, but at that time it was completely normal to continue your work. And it was actually, I think, quite good because you could build on what you did as a thesis, as a master's thesis or diploma thesis, as we called it. And so I, I stayed in the group because I, I really liked, again, I, I chose that group and that advisor because I liked the environment. Um, he was, he had spent time in the United States and, um, and, and came back with, with the, with a lot of the ideas that he, uh, was exposed to here that where professors work closely with our students in, in Germany, there, there was a huge difference between professors and students, um, in, in status, in, in the very few interactions at the time and his research group was very different he would meet with us at least twice a week but he often just came by to check on us to see what progress we made involved us in discussions made sure we published papers sent us to conferences so it's, it, I never regretted having made that choice because I thought it, we, he really did a good job at uh, keeping us uh, on top of things. <laughs> For an undergrad in America today, how would you suggest that they make the most of their experience if they are interested in the sciences? Well, so that would depend on what particular choice they make, but I can speak for physics and astronomy, and I think that the most important thing is to have a really solid foundation in physics and mathematics, and that is true for astronomy as well. And with that foundation, then, um, after the first four years, um, one can solidly engage in, in a lot of research projects. Now, if people do that earlier these days, there are a lot of projects that can be done even with very rudimentary expo uh, exposure to the basics of physics if one has programming skills. Mm -hmm. But I think it's always better to have that foundation because you understand so much more the landscape, not just that narrowly defined research project that you might be involved in. So I think solid preparation and then getting your hands-on research as early as, as one feels comfortable is a good idea. I believe that you have a PhD in astrophysics, yes. correct? Mm -hmm. How did you go about getting that? Was did you have any? Did you struggle during that process? Well, there is always. I mean, I, I don't think. I think rides are never smooth rides, and and I think people shouldn't be afraid of that. I mean, maybe we hear very little about the struggles that we hear about the stories of success. It's natural to struggle at times for one reason or another, not necessarily because not necessarily with the subject itself, but because we continuously think about the next step. We 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 see ourselves as people in a greater context and we try to project our futures. So it's natural to reconsider, to 
at, at times feel stranded. But I think that thinking carefully, talking to people, um, trying to get as, as broad a picture of the world as possible and, and your, your role in it is, is very important. So how did you decide to come to America? So the natural uh, path with um, after getting a PhD, let's say in physics and astrophysics, because it's different in other disciplines, would be to decide whether you would want an academic path or want to work in industry. So typically, and this again, was the case when I was young, when I was, when I was just a student, uh, one would do at least one set of post postdoctoral, um, a, a take on a postdoctoral appointment. And that is, um, that, that is important, I think, if you still are not sure what you would like to do, because it would definitely be the natural path to take if you want to go into academia. And it is an opportunity to, for you to see whether doing research more independently without really having somebody uh, tell you what to do, you know, the, the advisor on the thesis advisor is, um, is a good experience. So I uh, went that path for, and in fact, I went through two postdocs in Germany. Oh. And then um, well, I came to the United States uh, because I met my husband. So I wanted, we needed to have some sort of a solution mm -hmm. after two years of uh, flying back and forth. Um, so, and I always wanted to come to the United States to, to study or to, to work because I had been here as a student on, uh, on an extensive vacation so I felt like I, this was a place where I could definitely see myself for a period of time and this is how I applied for the NASA mm -hmm. uh, fellowship what is the NASA fellowship oh there are there are different uh, fellowships that was a, a National Research Council fellowship which no longer exists these days on which um, people from abroad could also apply and uh, at the time, there was interest in that particular group at NASA Ames in Mountain View for the work I was doing. So it was a good match. And Are you able to speak about the type of work that you did for NASA? Or Well, I like to say that um, that is not a topic for a popular talk, but I can say a few things about that. So this was uh, work that I had done on, well, remotely having to do with planet formation, but it's... Um, it's about the very early stages of planet formation. So planets form in so-called accretion disks. These are disks of gas that swirl around a forming young star. And um, in these disks of gas, planets subsequently form through, uh, through uh, agglomeration of solids into larger and larger bodies, accumulation of gas, and so on. But in order to study the planetary formation uh, process per se, one needs to understand the, the hydrodynamics and magnetohydrodynamics of this gas disk. And I was working on that subject, so using a, a computer code to simulate the flow of gas in the presence of magnetic fields. It's really interesting, <laughs> actually. So what was the learning curve when you went to NASA? Because how, or how did you get the background necessary to do that research? Well, the background I had before, so it's really what was important and that that, that research background fit into the overall research goals of the mm -hmm. group um, that I joined. Uh, on, and it was a planetary formation center in that sense. Um, so people would be working on a wide range of topics concerning planet formation or planets in general, even the current state of the planets in our own solar system. So there, there, were, there was a team of people involved in researching Mars, atmosphere, um, even you know questions of the possibility of life on Mars. And uh, there were people involved in just, just the first stage of planet formation, the agglomeration of, of uh, dust grains into larger bodies. There was a cosmochemistry group 
with an extensive lab. And uh, there were people concerned with a study of um, the atmospheres of giant planets. And this was around the time when uh, extrasolar planets started to get discovered. So it was really a big, and it was a huge um, topic at the forefront of the priority list for NASA. For you, how did that research fit into your goal of wanting to have an impact? Yeah, so that's when I, 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 this was a time when, although I really, really enjoyed my experience there, and I have to say, perhaps of all the places where I have worked, this has been the most wonderful environment, and I hold the people I worked with in high esteem to the day. Uh, they are, they were wonderful scientists and also wonderful people, incredibly humble, despite their high caliber work. Uh, but um, personally, I felt that I worked, I was working in a field where, for which, which there existed few observational data. Mm -hmm. And with no observational constraint, you can have theoretical models, but their va the value of such a model would be rather limited. Um, so when I was there and I, I set up, I wrote a proposal about um, trying to explain why a while at a time planets were not observed within a three days period from the star. You know, it was a big, a big thing at the time, and it was what observations were showing at the time. I wrote a proposal with an idea, and a proposal went through, and, and just a month later, Planets were discovered closer than three days, so that just that just made it so clear that things could be wrong. Things could be. I mean, science is is not is a self is self correcting in nature, and that's part of it. But you have, as a scientist, you have to be able to deal with that. And I felt that that was not where my personality fit in. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time during those years thinking about what I would be doing because I was clearly not satisfied with this mm -hmm. state. And, uh, and that's where I, I started teaching. I wanted to see what it is like. I'd never taught before other than um, prepare students. I wor worked with individual students who um, tutoring, but I did not teach a class so I wanted to see what it's like and I was immediately hooked uh, so that was that made me really happy what was your first teaching gig well my first teaching gig was actually TA for an astronomy course but I put in so much of energy into that I just developed miniature lectures and um, I was heavily involved in setting up the problem sets and uh, and uh, writing the exams. And that went so well that I soon was asked to teach a class. So I, I'm actually quite proud of, of the fact that I started from ground zero. <laughs> and, um, and I worked my way up, literally, from being a TA to being an instructor of record very, very quickly. And I, I enjoyed every single one of those uh, opportunities. And uh, slowly I found myself spending more and more time in being involved in teaching, being involved in my classes, and being involved with the students. So when I taught astronomy, I would take my students out on, um, with a telescope to look at the sky. And we did that several nights per semester, per quarter at, the, at that place. and. It just um, it showed me clearly that my focus was not in research. It was mm. not that. And I enjoyed too much working with people. And I listened to that. And uh, it's one nice day I made the decision to not send off a grant proposal that I'd started to write, I, to not finish a grant proposal that I'd started. And when I let go of that, I felt really uh, liberated. I felt good. It felt good. And I never since regretted that decision. So it must have been the right decision for me. 
Mm-hmm. One thing that I find amazing about you and your work is the meticulous attention to detail that you have. <laughs> and in class, you're all about doing things by hand and really making sure that you, you, you and your students are understanding every single step of the way. Where does that come from? Well, it might have something to do with my attention to the details as a as a kid, right? This like noticing that one bug that no, nobody else noticed, maybe. Um, but it also is out of a strong conviction that if we lose touch with how things are done manually, we might soon no longer be in command, you know. So especially in, in, in light of the uh, emerging question about what will we do as a society, as a species, when if we develop artificial intelligence to a point of no return, I feel that we need to understand how things work behind the black box mm-hmm. a scenario to be empowered. One um, thing that I think is interesting is the interplay between more computing power and science because we almost need these large databases for science and to make these large-scale scientific observations but it and how do you see that playing out in the future because it gets harder and harder for a human brain to wrap our heads around everything we have to really focus in on a certain field and even then we might not well, of course, we don't know everything, but it's harder and harder to know everything. Yeah, that's true. That, that things get increasingly more specialized. Um, that somebody, let's say, studying physics today will be an expert in one particular field or a subset of a field. Like I was one of the very few people doing, uh, being involved in theoretical accretion disk astrophysics at the time. And that was a very small community. And... It is, um, yeah, there is, it is natural that this is happening. But I think it is important to keep, for anyone, in fact, and this is particularly important for people going into research, to keep that openness for other fields, even if it is something that might seem on the surface completely different. Because the techniques that somebody uses in in an entirely different field may be the key to solving a problem in your field, but you won't see it unless you keep that open-mindedness. So it's invaluable to, uh, to read what other discoveries are being made, even if it seems to be at a superficial level and you'll never be an expert there, but just to... Uh, to have that bigger picture, not just uh, um, that small-scale world of your own research concerns. Mm. What would you say is the key for being a successful teacher? Well, I think I think it's important to understand where the students are coming from. Um, I think relating to the students is one of the most important components of teaching. And um, being able to, yeah, to see what they're struggling with. So you can adjust your expectations, not necessarily to make things easier, but to not overwhelm when um, it is often of uh, greater value to step back a little bit and... uh, is up when things are getting way too tough and overwhelming. You might lose it altogether. Um, yeah, I think conveying enthusiasm is incre- incredibly important um, and motivation, but also being there for people, being there for the students, um, working with them. I mean, the time spent cannot be substituted by anything, I think. And it's not just the time, but all everything together Um, is a package. Mm -hmm. My high school teacher told me that it's really hard to inspire a student or give them enthusiasm about a subject, especially in high school for science, but it's really easy to demotivate them or make them lose interest and just turn off their brain. Do you ever find that a challenge? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to keep keep my... um, See... 
to keep feeling what's going on in the classroom. And that's why, too, I, I, I think that teaching without being involved in the office hours as I am, and I've always been involved this way, would uh, make me lose touch. And I like to see, for instance, even do grading, right? So when I do at least grade exams, I, I can't, I don't have the time to grade homework, but I will grade the exams so that I can see what, what the whole class is doing on a particular problem. Where is, where are the issues? I feel that if I didn't do that, I, I would really not understand where students are and I wouldn't be able to relate. I would not be able to adjust my teaching style, my explanations to for them to be able to succeed. So what I see in office hours is, is really invaluable, could not be replaced by anything else. I see then how individuals are thinking through the problems that I gave them. And sometimes it makes me realize, oh, I, I came up or I put on the problem set uh, a couple of problems that are too hard, obviously. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's important to be aware of it. And it's important to be aware of the limitations at the time, the current limitations of the class as a whole. And uh, to try to think about how you could help people um, who so desperately want to uh, get better to improve how can you help them reach that level of proficiency that they desire the amount of rigor and in your class and in the problem sets is every time i do a problem set or every time i finish a lecture it's always it always feels good to me because in the moment it might not feel so great i might be really struggling to grasp onto a concept or a topic but then after i get that sense of satisfaction that i overcame that challenge and i think that that's unique to your classes in that other classes sometimes they don't have the right amount of rigor or i don't know they're just explained differently and so i'm not as engaged and i don't get that satisfaction after doing the problems and I think that back, it might have been the first week of school, you were talking about how you like to make things hard and not too easy for somebody. And I, I think you talked about how pain is helpful. And can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's not really other than that you, I, I feel that, it's, I mean, students need to be challenged. And I'm not talking just about Yale students. I really th felt that when I taught at UC Santa Cruz, I, I had the same philosophy and I always challenged my students as much as I could. And they always responded positively to that and they went beyond what they thought they were capable of doing. So I feel like it's my duty to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, with um, when you were talking about the pain, I would rather uh, call and I would use the following analogy. I think that most of us can relate to that, that people, for instance, like to go hiking, like to go out in nature. And there simply are landscapes and that you cannot reach unless you put in an effort. You cannot have the same view that you have from the peak of a mountain. But to get to the peak of the mountain, you have to go uphill. And it is not pleasant. I don't think that anyone can say that going uphill is their favorite thing to do. But they do it for that view. And on the way there, you feel it's hard, but every step provides you with something to hold on to until you get to that peak. And then you have this view and that's that sense of satisfaction that you're talking about. Would you have it on a little hill in the same way? No, certainly not. So I feel like we all have to put something of ourselves into the truly great things that we accomplish. Nothing comes for free and nor would we want it to come for free, I think, because deprived of that sense of satisfaction, we wouldn't have the motivation. I think that that viewpoint is largely disregarded maybe especially in public education where it's often a lot easier to make thing to make the classwork easier for the students because then they perform better naturally because the classwork's easier but so how how would you suggest a teacher that is struggling with getting their students engaged or 
increasing the rigor without getting too much complaints from excessive homework or etc how how do you suggest they take steps to become a better teacher i don't think see this is one question i i don't have an answer for i haven't thought about i mean people often ask me what are you doing i don't know i i don't think i would write a book for people to read about how to i feel everybody has to discover their own way of doing things of of teaching of, of dealing with with interacting with people i don't know i this is a one question i cannot answer <laughs> i think it well if it had an easy answer i think we'd be doing it right yeah everybody would i don't know it, it really is that people need to want to they need to want to um to get to that point, maybe. I think that says a lot in any discipline, whether it be teaching, whether it be science or music or athletics. Yeah. really takes you figuring out your own way. There's no set path for everybody that works. That is very true, yeah. I, I don't think that, I mean, there you can read books about how to, and uh, I never did actually. Um, I've, I, I always uh, figured it out in a context and I, I could not read uh, such a book but um, and I would never want to give I mean I would give advice if people asked me but I wouldn't volunteer it perhaps <laughs> I don't know so in class one day you said I'm not interested in the regurgitation of knowledge but the derivation of knowledge Oh, I, I said that. that. <laughs> That's interesting. Inspiring. <laughs> what what leads to that mindset or that thought? Well, it's it's about knowing where things are coming from. Yeah. So that's that's this this. I feel uncomfortable with a block black box system that I mentioned earlier. Yes. Mm -hmm. So and that's why I went into physics ultimately after so much thinking about all these other things that I could have done is because I really valued that simplicity of the fundamental ideas that then could allow you to build such a complex system. And I definitely would always ask, why is it so? Even not only in physics, I would always ask, why do I have to do things this way and not a different way? And uh, this may have a lot to do with my upbringing as well, but um, um, yeah, so you're not taking things for granted, but finding out where they came from is, is a really valuable thing to do for everybody. Another thing from class that I find fascinating is your interest in industrial architecture. What, what has led to that? Huh, so that's, um, thinking about the origins of that, I think I'm, I am in general interested in architecture and I, I like modern architecture. So industrial architecture, I think that's intertwined with the uh, time I spent in the uh, Ruhrgebiet in Germany where uh, there has been historically a lot of uh, yeah the industrial industrialization led to uh, at the time the building of incredible sites of work castles of work if you so want and those the simplicity of that architecture um that i find so it's so beautiful um it's the simple lines that always attract me everything that i do and everything that i would put together would be simple my high school science teacher was fascinated with the idea of Occam's razor, where the simplest solution is often mm. the right solution. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's sort yes, of connected? Yes, yes, definitely. I would always, I would always uh, throw that in if uh, somebody comes in with a very convoluted theory about why something would have happened, especially after the fact. So after the observations have been made some sophisticated theory about why this particular state of affair must have occurred. Um, I, I always like to think about that. Do you ever have a problem with overthinking things? Because I think that 
is the foundation for coming up with these convoluted theories is that you overthink either your choices in life or you, maybe you look back and start to think too much. Oh, I regret that. Do you do you do that or how do you know? No, I try to stay away from that because I mean it's a first um, you can't bring the past back, um, but you can change the future. So. I like to resist that temptation, even if sometimes thoughts could cross my mind, as naturally people think back. Um, but I think it's not profitable. And I try, for instance, the students to encourage them as well to not dwell on the misfortunes of the past or the some exam that didn't go as well as they wanted or some homework problem set that didn't come out as they liked it. I, I like to encourage them to look forward, to, to fix what was wrong, to fill in the gaps and to move on. I think that's um, a, a, a healthy a perspective. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention or any words of advice that you would give a young prospective scientist or teacher? I would like to encourage people to believe in themselves and to believe in the good of of the world and to pursue their dreams. To not get intimidated, to resist that at all costs. And it's sometimes hard to do on your own, to find the people that would provide that environment that they need to feel nurtured and to move forward, as I did, in fact. Because um, I did find the environment that I wanted. On that note, I, one problem that a lot of students here that I notice we encounter is that we like, we, we don't like to, but we do compare ourselves to each other. And then, I, I don't know, it's maybe some sort of ego thing where you have to think, oh, I did better than he or she on this test. Or how do you, how do you suggest you overcome that? Or maybe you get feelings that, oh, I'm not good enough because I didn't do as well as that person. Yeah, it's a sense of competitiveness that is uh, intrinsic to people. I mean, you you guys all got into Yale. I mean, you must have been competitive your whole lives. And I'm competitive too. But when I get too competitive, I feel uncomfortable. Mm. I noticed. So I see that when I when I run. I mean, I don't run so much anymore, but I used to run marathons and I felt competitive within my group of mm -hmm. you know I wasn't the top athlete but I was a decent runner and I would get competitive when I get passed up and I didn't want to get passed up and and I thought this is not feeling good to, it doesn't it I shouldn't feel this way it's not healthy I don't enjoy my run so much anymore if I try to always be ahead of somebody and so I just again let go of that and I felt a lot better about it because it's not about how I am compared to somebody else it's about how I am this is who I am it's for me not for the world um, not for the person who passes me up mm -hmm. to see that I am faster than them so it's it's it takes work to not compare yourself with others. I mean, it's, it's in some way important to compare yourself because that may make you want to get better, it may make you want to improve, but there is a limit to that. The limit between productively comparing you versus beating yourself up. And I think that for every person, it is important that they recognize where that boundary has been crossed. Um, and that can take a lot of work, but it's, it's an important thing to focus on. All right. Well, so, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this interview. It's, it's been great to hear your story and your thoughts on the world and your journey. Fascinating. Well, thank you for putting this together for students. Yes, thank you. And that concludes this interview with Professor Steinecker. I would like to apologize for some of the audio quality in that interview. It was pretty windy outside and I had to turn the gain up pretty high on some of the microphones. So I do apologize for that. But overall, I thought that Professor Steinecker's opinions and worldview was just very refreshing in general. 
I really liked how she took responsibility for her own learning and her own life. And I think that a lot of people can learn from that, regardless of what outside scenarios may be going on. It's always possible to take responsibility for learning as much as you can and just overall having a positive outlook on the way that things are going to go. Even if things do go badly in one instance, if you just persevere through them, like she said, then chances are that they will end up getting better. And I think that her class is just an example of that. For instance, when I would work on the problem sets in her class, I would find that initially it would seem very difficult and I would look at the problems and say, wow, how do I even approach this? But then after going about studying some more or looking through my notes from class or perhaps going to office hours, I would find that, wow, these problems are actually doable and I can do these problems. It just takes a little bit of time and a little bit of struggle. But then once you get past that struggle, you find this satisfaction and you get this confidence knowing that you can tackle any more problems that come along in the same manner. And I think that that mentality applies to more than just physics, more than just school and academia. It applies to life, even athletics. And before I conclude this episode, I would like to say that there is a Facebook page, a Twitter page, and an Instagram page, which I encourage you to follow if you like this podcast and you want to hear more and also please subscribe and leave a review it really helps me to hear feedback this is a massive learning experience for me i recognize that it might be an all right podcast right now but how do you get better it's practice uh, one thing that prevented me, I had a mental block with this podcast, is that I wanted it to be perfect, and then I would find these little excuses that would stop me from putting out an episode. And for a couple months, I was just completely non-productive. But then after I got past the fact that it's not going to be perfect, and I just need to put it out there, well, now I'm putting this out there, so... Uh, hopefully I'm going to get back into it. I think I, I will because there's only one way to grow and that's practice. So thank you so much for listening to the episode. Please subscribe. Like I said, leave a review and I can't wait to sh share the next one with you. And with that, thank you and see you next time.